0: Well, brothers and sisters, the passage before us this morning is one that uh, prompts us to ask a question that we've asked before, but I would ask it again this morning: What is the gospel? Uh, some of this is uh, likely to be review; other, uh, otherwise, we might learn something new. But the question is: What is the gospel? And it's raised not because the word gospel appears in this uh, in this passage, but because. That's what Paul is teaching in this second portion. Remember, the second part of his letter to the church at Rome. Remember that it's it's Romans that gives us the most succinct uh, outline of sin, salvation, and service. It's a it's a progression of teaching that the um, uh, a progression of teaching that is definitely not limited to Romans. But in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we see this outline most clearly and uh, and in the most, we might say, the most limited number of words, so to speak. There's a sense in which if you want to understand the Bible as a whole, read the book of Romans. Because it gives us a very succinct, even though it's 16 chapters long, it still gives us a succinct uh, accounting of the overall teaching, the, the full counsel of God's Holy Word. So it shouldn't surprise us that uh, in the second part of Paul's letter, which is where we are, uh, that uh, we get uh, a clear teaching of the gospel. But if you ask someone, uh, what is the gospel? Uh, they might respond by saying, uh, Well, do you mean the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And that's not a wrong uh, thing to point out. The Gospel of Mark, for example, even begins with the words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God. Uh, On one hand, the word Gospel simply means good news, Uh, And and the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are all historical records of the good news, of the the birth, the, the life and ministry, the suffering and death, the resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To put it another way, there are not finally four Gospels, but one Gospel, one message of the good news, of jesus christ however it's it's not even the four gospels matthew mark luke and john that uh, need to be taken into account in order to know and believe the one gospel god's word as a whole proclaims to us the gospel and the passage before us this morning summarizes the gospel in, in just 12 verses, in, in just a few words, so if you ever are feeling like uh, you need to brush up on the gospel, if you are ever burdened by the, the conviction of your sin, you can always turn to Romans 4, verses 1-12 through 12, in order to gain reassurance of God's grace to you in Christ. God's grace to you in Christ, which is to say the good news of Jesus Christ is exactly this, that to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And your assurance in hearing this summary, this very succinct uh, statement of the gospel, should be all the more comforting. We want to we point this out this morning. It should be all the more comforting to you to know that this was the gospel even according to Abraham. One of the benefits of, of reading your entire Bible of of hearing, as we say, the the full counsel of God's Word, is to see that God does not change. Of course, the changelessness of God is like every other of God's attributes. If you are not a believer in Christ, every attribute of God will be a burden to you. It will even be a terror to you to consider each and every one of God's attributes, including His changelessness. The unbeliever says, Oh, that God would change and not be what He is, for He is a terror to me. But if you are a believer in Christ, if a changeless God has forgiven your sin and reconciled you to Himself, if he has changed you and, and adopted you as his own child, then the changelessness of God has become a comfort to you. And that's what we want to gain from the passage that is before us this morning. Here's the first point, the gain of Abraham. The Apostle Paul begins the next part of his letter with a question. He asks, uh, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Paul's point will be that the, the gain of Abraham is also our gain, as we too, like Abraham, believe God and receive the promise of the gospel. But we also gain... I want to say this morning by knowing that the same gospel was available or or, or that was available to Abraham is available to us. The Old Testament to the New, Genesis to Revelation, it's the same problem of sin, it's the same God, it's the same way of salvation. So let's start with the gain of Abraham and then apply it for our, we might say, double gain after that. First, under this point, there there was for Abraham a great gain simply by believing the promise of God. Abraham lived thousands of years before the writing of Paul's letter to the Roman church, so that now, by way of our day in 2023... Abraham lived thousands of years more before our hearing of the gospel, but it's all the same. It's all the same. We have heard the problem of sin in the first part of Paul's letter so that there can be only one solution. There can be only one salvation in order to be saved. A sinner must not merely try harder. A sinner, whether Abraham or us, the sinner must have righteousness. To be a sinner is to be under the wrath and judgment of God for sin. Only the righteous will be saved. And so, the only hope of salvation is to be found righteous before God. How is that going to happen? Hopefully you're in despair as much as I'm in despair. If left to myself, how am I going to be found righteous before a holy God? And so it can only come. Salvation can only be found by the gift of righteousness. This was last time, right? Do you remember the good news of God, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that God gives the gift of righteousness. God credits perfect obedience to those who merely trust Him to provide it. Who ever heard of such a thing? It's just not how things work in this world, which is what Paul is pointing out in verse 4. He says, Now, to the one who works. His wages are not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. It's, what's, it's what he's earned. It's what's coming to him. In this world, you only get what you earn. Everybody understands that. Everybody, everybody gets it. It's why you go to work every morning. You don't stay in bed and expect that your paycheck is still going to come to you. If you don't go to work, you don't get paid, at least not for very long. <laughs> but that's not how the gospel works. The works of the gospel, there are works to the gospel, but they're not your works. They are the works of God and Christ. And God gives the works of Christ as a credit to the one who who trust him to provide it. This was the gain of Abraham, as it says in verse 3, for for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There is a sense in which Paul is is trying to get his, his Roman readers and and, and the Holy Spirit is now speaking the same to us, to, to, that we would understand the, the other worldliness of the gospel. The gospel is not of this world. You, you can't measure it by the standards of this world. You can't evaluate it and say, well, that doesn't make sense that righteousness is a gift. Granted, the gospel is not of this world it is of God. The Apostle Paul even began his letter to the church at Rome with, uh, with a reference to the gospel of God. And that's, that's kind of a strange way to put it. We don't see it that way very often. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We don't hear it that way very often we usually hear the gospel of salvation or the gospel of Jesus Christ, but but here it's the gospel of God because because right from the beginning Paul is laboring, he's laboring with pen and ink to get his readers to see and understand that this is an otherworldly gospel. Don't expect that that the God of grace and mercy is going to operate by the standards of this sad world. All the other gods of the world are just projections of sinful man onto God. Only the one true God, the God of grace and mercy, stands outside of the world's standards. If you want something... You have to earn it. Everybody understands that. At least Paul is counting on everyone understanding that. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you pick up your paycheck, you are not receiving a gift, but you are receiving what you earned. Have you ever sent a a thank you card to your employer after your employer... Gave you your pay. No, you, you earned it. But not so with God, teaches Paul. With God, it's the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, whose faith is counted as righteousness. So here's the, We might put it this way, here's the equation of salvation for you, for you STEM people. Faith equals righteousness. Righteousness equals salvation. Salvation equals heaven and eternal life. Therefore, faith equals eternal life. Do you want to live forever? I know I do. But you can only live forever and arrive in heaven if you are righteous And thanks be to God for the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Such was the gain of Abraham, the same gain that you and I have as we too are believers in the promises of God. For Abraham, it was the promise of what would come, of of, of what would happen in the future. For us, it's the promise of uh, the promise in God's word of what has come, of what has happened. But for us too, like Abraham, it's still the promise not only of what has happened, what God has done, but it's the promise of what is now. And it's the promise of what will come when Jesus comes again. So here's the double gain of knowing that Abraham too was saved in the same way that we are, that God has not changed. That even as we see Abraham's sin even after he believed God's promise, so we are assured that God is true. Paul even Paul even has already written in the in the in the in the last chapter in chapter 3 he says what if some were unfaithful that's us right what if some were unfaithful does their un that, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of god and he answers by no means let god be true though every one were a liar Already in the last chapter, Paul has been, has been working to show us the other worldliness of the gospel. Let God be true. Let every one be a liar. In this world, promises are broken. You've broken promises. I've broken promises. We've had promises given to us that were broken. In this world, promises go unfulfilled. It happens all too often. In this world, you don't have it until you see it, until you hold it in your hand. But God is true and faithful, and and what he says is. This is why this is the importance of the story of creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Therefore, we can gain The gain of Abraham by believing the promise of God and the further gain is gained from seeing that God is unchanging, that God's unchanging faithfulness to Abraham is His unchanging faithfulness to us as well. So the next is the boast of Abraham. The boast of Abraham. Not only was Abraham just like us in the way that he was saved, He was just like us in his sin. We tend to look at certain figures in the Bible as being above sin. Noah built the ark and he was saved. Abraham was the man of God who obeyed God. David stood up to Goliath and killed him. Daniel did the right thing, was thrown to the lions. And Paul doesn't discount the greatness of such figures, even of Abraham. But he returns to his teaching regarding sin With these words, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Okay, yes, it's true. There are great men and women of obedience in the Bible. Abraham obeyed God. He left his homeland. He set out not even knowing where exactly he was going. David risked his life as he met with Goliath. And, uh, and struck him down. Daniel defied the king and faced the lions. And so they could boast before men. I obeyed. I stood up. I did what was right. They can boast. But they still cannot boast before God. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Jesus, our Lord, put it this way in Luke 17, verse 7. He said, So when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Applied to us, we can say, uh, I have been faithful. I, I did not cheat, lie, or steal. And go ahead. You can boast about it before your fellow man. But you can't boast before God. Before God, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. And the only way to be justified, the only righteousness that I can possibly gain is by receiving the gift of righteousness from God in Christ. And so we have the justification of Abraham. Verse 5 reads, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Isn't that an amazing thing? God doesn't justify the righteous. Why? Because the righteous don't need to be justified. They're already righteous. The problem is there are none who are righteous. And so, who can be justified? Who is there for God to justify? The ungodly. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. One of the tenets of the the Reformation is faith alone. One of the solas, as we say, of the Reformation faith alone. To give all five of the tenets of the Reformation, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, unto God's glory alone, and all by the teaching of God's Word alone. But there are some who would say, uh, "Well, we we don't we don't see those two words together very much, if if at all, in Scripture." But actually, we do. And, and, we, and we see it right here in this teaching from the Apostle Paul because he teaches that it's the one who does not work but believes. That's faith alone. That's faith apart from works. And Jesus, our Lord, didn't say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for a while. So you can get up again and continue your work. So that you can get up again and, and continue on with the scant hope of, of salvation and the elusive goal of eternal life. No, he, he said, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. the gospel according to Matthew Mark Luke and John the gospel according to the apostle Paul and Peter is the gospel according to Abraham it's not that Abraham wrote a book like Matthew Mark Luke and John and 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 Paul and Peter but but Abraham really preached and, and taught the gospel in his life. Abraham trusted God to, to provide, to provide what he had promised. God promised Abraham a land of his own. God promised Abraham his constant care and protection. God promised Abraham many descendants coming from his own body. And so implicit within the promises of God to Abraham was the promise of salvation Through Jesus Christ. Did Abraham understand the fullness of what God was promising him? We'll let the scholars debate that question out. But the plain teaching of Romans 4 is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. And the application to us is that we too have the promises of God, a God who does not change, the God who has always had one plan of salvation. Trust me, says God, and I will provide for you. God provides even the righteousness that we need to escape His judgment for sin. It's so otherworldly that, that we, we can easily miss it or misunderstand it. And, and so every week, what do we do? We come back here to this little room on the north side of Terre Haute. We come back here again so that we can hear it again, so that the gospel will be proclaimed. And, we're, and it's a matter of don't forget righteousness, perfect obedience is the gift of God in Jesus Christ You can't provide it. You can't offer your righteousness to God. He must provide it, and He calls upon you but to receive it. Righteousness, heaven, even eternal life are the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Finally, then, the sacraments of Abraham. It's kind of a strange fourth point, but it's, it's Paul's fourth point, so to speak. The sacrament of Abraham. Uh, in the latter part of our text, Paul returns to this matter of circumcision. How does the gift of righteousness square with the Old Testament practice of, of circumcision? Paul was writing to a, a church at Rome that was quite apparently uh, largely Jewish so that they knew what circumcision was. For us, we, we simply need to see that circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Think of it this way, that that when you go to work for, for some company, you might be given an ID card. That's a sign of your employment. You might be given... Uh, Uh, A uniform, that's a sign of your employment. Uh, Maybe you're even given a parking place in the the company parking lot. That's, in a sense, what a sacrament is. Uh, A sacrament is a sign that you belong, that you have been received, that you have privileges. The problem with that illustration is that it's based on works. You've been hired because you have been found worthy, to be hired you belong because you've earned it but not so with God in the gospel you cannot boast before God because everything is a gift even our next breath even the next beat of our heart is a gift it was a gift at the beginning of creation it was a gift upon our conception and our physical birth But it's the further gift of God each and every day. It's a gift that we take each breath, that each time our heart beats throughout our lives, it is the gift of God. Life is the gift of God. And and all the more through all eternity. And the sacrament is only a sign of what is. A reminder of this reality of utter dependence upon God, dependence in the most glorious sense. The sacrament is simply the sign of what is in in our dependence upon God and, and that ought to prompt us to utter thanksgiving to God. But what did the people do with the sacrament of circumcision? They they turned it from being the sign of what God does by His grace and mercy to what they do and and what they are by their own doing. As if to provide their own righteousness. In Genesis 12, God gave promises to Abraham and and all He said was, this is what I'm going to do for you. There were no ifs and there were no buts. And, And Abraham believed. In Genesis 15, Abraham, like you and me, was was struggling to believe because the the promises of God had not yet been fulfilled and he was getting old. And so God gave his promises again and even performed and and put Abraham through an elaborate ceremony to give him reassurance of of his faithfulness. And then... In Genesis 17, God gave his promises again, and he also instituted the sacrament of circumcision. So that every time Abraham looked down at himself, if you know what I mean, he would be reminded of the reminder of the promises that he had already been given. And that's what our sacraments are, a reminder of the reminder of the promises of God. Every time we receive the Lord's Supper, as we hope to hear just shortly, we are meant to be reminded of the reminder, of the reminder, of the reminder, the promise in the garden. The seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent is meant to be remembered by the promise to Abraham the promise to Abraham is the reminder of the promise of God to Noah after the flood the promise to Noah was uh, or, or, or is remembered by the the promise to David the promise to David is remembered by the promise of the prophets that the Christ would come and the promise of God was fulfilled in in the coming of Christ and now today uh, it's remember the promise Every week by the preaching of the gospel, remember the promises of God. And for us, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is remember the promise of God fulfilled in Christ. As it was in the beginning, so now and ever shall it be. God is gracious and merciful. He is the just judge of sin, but he is also the provider of salvation. And for us, each time we sit at the table of our Lord, we do it, how? We do it in remembrance of Him. Only let us be careful that we don't follow suit and turn the Lord's table into our obedience. That's what Israel did with circumcision. They turned the sacrament into their obedience rather than receiving it as God's reassurance. That's why God gave Abraham to sleep through the ceremony of of Genesis 15. The point is not that we should sleep through the Lord's Supper. Let me make that clear. But that we come to the Lord's table merely to receive. Righteousness and salvation are merely to be received so that our place at the Lord's table is one of pure receiving. Receiving the body and blood of Christ in sacrifice for our sin and in fulfillment of God's promise. Paul writes of Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, it wasn't circumcision that saved him. Circumcision was the sign that righteousness and salvation were the gift of God to Abraham. And thus Abraham was the father of all who believe, writes Paul, and it was then so, or, or as it was then, so it is now. Let us close our mouths. Let us cease our boasting. Let us never try to earn it. Let us shut up and sit down and receive it. The gift of righteousness. The provision of God in Christ for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, hear the gospel. Hear the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, such a great and glorious gospel you have given us to hear. But, O Lord, in our sin and in our pride, we we can turn from it, and even as we might receive it, By your grace, yet we also forget it. In our pride, we would turn back to depending upon ourselves. But, O Lord, may we be powerfully reminded by word and sacrament this morning that you are the God who gives salvation. You are the God who gives salvation. Righteousness, through the perfect life and sacrificial and atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ, grant that we would be those merely with our hands out to receive. And may we rejoice that though it was so greater work for Christ. Yet it is so easy for us that we can come and rest in what Christ has done for us, for our righteousness, and for our salvation. In His name we pray. Amen.